This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So I thought this was a a really interesting way of approaching this topic. So the name of the segment is Signs of a Debt Problem. And you think, okay, what are the signs? But how often do you read something or hear about something happening and it's, oh yeah, that would, well, that would never happen to me. Mm -hmm. That would never happen to us. That would never happen to our province, our country, our community, whatever it is. And I think that's a really interesting way to approach this because it kind of keeps one in a bit of denial about your situation. Like you may be dealing with things on a regular basis and go, oh, this is how everybody does it, yeah. it with a debt, dealing with a debt or, you know, not being able to make your payments. So I thought that was a, a really good way to think about this. Um, and you've got some super interesting stats uh, around debts, how it impacts you and, and who it impacts. Um, I'm just, yeah, I think this mm-hmm. is going to be really interesting. Yeah. So what's the, I know you often hear uh, from clients that, boy, I wish I hadn't waited so long to come oh, and see yeah. you. Yeah, the average person, and we've studied this, it's about two years from the period of time when they know they got an issue. You know, if they were to come in and see us, they'd probably have a really good meeting and have a lot of optimism moving forward. But it's often a two-year period where people, you know, they flail about, they're not sure what to do. Sometimes they're even hoping to win a lottery or, you know, have some windfall come to them. Um, Who knows? But a lot of people really delay dealing with the problem until it becomes, you know, just insurmountable. And it becomes a little bit more difficult to challenge at that point. And if you're one of those people that doesn't have any debt, you'd go... (laughs) Well, how would you? How would you not know? How would yeah. you not take this on? But it's really an interesting time that we're living in because mm-hmm. having debt is the new normal. Yeah, yeah. If you think about it, you know, twenty years ago, our debt to income ratio was under a hundred percent. You know, now it's about one hundred and seventy. I think one hundred and seventy-three the last time. So we owe a dollar seventy-three for every dollar we earn in income, and that's crazy, insane. As a trustee, I've never seen a, a number that, to me, so perfectly encapsulates how overextended we are. And you know, the average person listening, they might think, okay, well, I've got a bunch of debt, but I'm managing. And I would say if we listen to this segment here, if there's a bunch of, you know, if it's ringing the bell for you, a couple of these things are happening, you may be just fine. Or you may want to consider, okay, let me chat with a professional and see if there is a better way for me to move forward. And I always worry about the young people. You know, Mm -hmm. the young people starting out, they've got new jobs, they've got little kids maybe, and mortgages and blah, blah, blah. And debt is the new normal for them. Oh yeah, it's very tough these days for sure. So what are the major signs uh, that that you're in a bit of a, you're in a financial crisis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's segment this into two. There's the really obvious signs. And these are things I think, you know, most people would say, oh yeah, for sure that's indicative. And then there's ones that are less obvious. So on the ones that we see all the time, you know, not being able to make even a minimum monthly payment on your debts or bouncing payments. So, you know, if we were 10 years ago, we'd say, you know, bouncing checks all over town and typically checks aren't used that much anymore, but you know, a lot of NSF fees, unable to just honor even the minimum requirements on your debts. That's a big warning sign. 
Um, you know, a second one, and this is no surprise to anyone who's ever missed a payment, is getting collection calls sure. or letters, um, and those will escalate. So the first couple months will be very friendly. They still care about you as a customer. After three months, you'll be talking about threats of lawsuits, threats of legal action. Um, so if you're there, if you're screening your phone calls, if you're not sure who's collecting for who, if you're being threatened with escalating collection actions, um, a lot of these can lead you to a breaking point where you just can't handle the psychological stress anymore. And it's often a sign that, yeah, the debt problem is bigger than you're able to handle. Uh, and then a last really obvious one is if your wages or your bank accounts have just been seized, they've sure. just been garnished and suddenly your take-home pay is two-thirds of what it was because your creditors are getting a piece of it. That's the wall falling down on top of you saying you have a problem here. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I was thinking about was when you're getting phone calls and emails and all that stuff, I mean, we have to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fake stuff out yeah. there for sure, oh, yeah. but some of it isn't. Mm-hmm. Some of your financial institutions, well, for the most part, they don't access you through email, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they're calling you, but even then, you've got to be super careful who yeah, you're talking to. Yeah, you, d- you to. definitely want to check, and you don't want to be volunteering any information, but you probably know if you've got a debt that you're not paying, and if yeah. the person right off the bat you know, is exactly the debt, the details, the account number, probably it's a legit call, and you know, essentially, you're not going to be giving anything personal. You're just going to be absorbing a little bit of abuse, unfortunately, on the call and then saying, okay, I'm going to try to make my payment. Please don't call me anymore. Right. So uh, what are the subtle warning signs that you're in a financial pickle? Yeah. One that I see a whole lot is regularly overspending or having a broken budget. And what I mean by that is there's just a structural deficit every month. There's just not enough money coming in the door that even if the person lived according to their budget, there'd still be a shortfall. You know, I see it, especially in Vancouver from a cost of living point of view, where, you know, a good benchmark metric for your rent is about a third of your income, you know, 33%. Um, I see people come in, 50% is the new third. <laughs> Almost everybody I see, 50% of their income is going to rent, sometimes up to 60 or 70%. And when I look at the budget, I can see this is a broken budget. You know, as soon as, based on your income, as soon as you've paid rent, there's no money for groceries, for transit, for different things like that. So every month, the problem is going to get a little bit worse. So just having that broken budget can really be a challenge. And I just want to throw in, there was a re- recent article about uh, the average month, uh, ad, uh, average monthly rental for yes. a two-bedroom in Metro Vancouver, mm-hmm. $3,000. Highest in the country. Are you kidding me? Who can like, afford that? Right? Yeah. Crazy. Okay, off mm-hmm. topic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's keep going. Yeah. So another subtle one um, is avoiding account balances. So if you've got a stack of unopened mail, um, you're avoiding talking about the issue with your spouse or with people that are really um, you know, close to you, you're kind of hiding things away. Uh, or if you're behind in filing your income tax returns because you know that you owe money. Mm-hmm. Definitely the wrong approach. File that return. CRA knows that you probably owe money, but by not filing, you're in an even worse category of yes. being a non-filer as opposed to someone who has a debt. So if you're avoiding the account balances, that's another indication. Um, A third one here is taking on more debt. And this is definitely counterintuitive, um, but this is when we surveyed our clients, about 40% of people said this is how they knew their debts were becoming a problem, was they were just continually borrowing more and more. So they looked a year ago, and they owed X thousands of dollars, and then they looked this year, and they owed you know, X plus $5,000. Oh, um, and sometimes this just happens because all they've been doing is just playing financial Tetris, we call it, moving money around from one to the other, just making the minimum payments. Um, and your credit, basically, if you're paying 20 or 30% interest on these debts, they're going to escalate they're going to double on their own about every three, three and a half years. Um, so if you see that your debts are going up, if you're starting to use payday loans, um, sometimes people have consolidated their debts, which can be a great thing, but quite often they consolidate their debts and then they're dealing with the consolidated debts, but the credit cards are back at zero 
and they run the credit cards up again because they've got the broken budget and they just need that extra money to survive. Yeah. Another one too, I think is so important. I'm so glad you included it is, is making that either the same or a little bit more that monthly payment mm-hmm. on the credit cards. Yeah. If you're just stuck making just the minimum payment or even a little bit more, uh, many of the banks of what you pay in your minimum payment, about $10 is actually what goes to reduce the, the debt. The rest of it is eaten up by interest and fees every month. So take a close look at your statements, see, you know, if they're all your able to pay is the minimum payment, are you on the 40, 50, 100 year plan? It's not a good plan to be on. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that sort of gets in that category of the wrong steps to take to try mm-hmm. to fix the, the situation. And I'm yeah. sure there's more too. Well, there's definitely the wrong things to do. And sometimes you feel like you're doing the right thing. Exactly. Because yep. I really believe people want to do the right I, thing. I firmly believe right? that too. That's what energizes me is helping honest people get out of a tough situation, not helping anybody be dishonest and you know walk away from their debts, but helping people that really wanted to pay this money back, but just couldn't. Yeah. So as long as you're honest, you know, a lot of people try to do the best things possible but sometimes they'll take advice from the wrong sources, which can be the collection agent that you just want to make the pain go away. So you take their advice. So the number one worst thing you could be doing if you've got a debt problem is to cash in your RRSPs. Any of our longtime listeners will know RRSPs are federally protected assets. You can never be forced to cash them in. Even if you go into bankruptcy, you will keep all of your RRSPs except any last minute contributions you've done in the year prior. But stuff that's been there for 20, 30, 50 years, whatever, um, you keep all of your retirement savings unless you decide to cash it in to pay your debts. What often happens when you cash it in is it's often not enough to pay the debts and then you end up with a tax bill because when you put it into your RRSPs, you got the tax deduction. Now when you take it out, you're charged that tax again. So it can really be a double whammy that you've still got a debt problem, you got no retirement, and now you've got a tax bill on top of it. It's almost counterintuitive too to not to not cash them because mm-hmm. you think, oh, well, I actually do have some money that yeah. I can put towards it. Yeah. I get why people would do it. But, exactly. But legally, you do not have to. You do to. not have to. And we're living longer and longer lives these days. So there's nobody I know that thinks they got too much saved for retirement. Usually it's quite the opposite. Um, you know, another couple of things that can really cause you problems um, is to try to get a co-signer on your debts. Mm. So sometimes you'll try to consolidate the debts and the bank will say, okay, happy to do so, but let's get mom, dad, brother, sister, spouse, whoever to co-sign on the dotted line. What you've done at that point is you've given the bank another pocket to dig into that if you can't pay that debt for any reason, they can go to your cosigner for full payment of everything plus charges, and it can also impact their credit rating. What breaks my heart is when somebody does that, they've removed their ability to really compromise the debt. Because if they don't get a cosigner, they come in and see me, I can do a consumer proposal, or I could help them with the bankruptcy. It's going to be limited to their personal circumstances. No one else is going to be hurt or helped. If the debt's been co-signed, I can still do that proposal to basically absolve them from their situation, but they're going to feel morally responsible to that co-signer, and usually that means they're going to end up paying that back over time. So they've just lost the ability to structure this, to restructure this debt because they got a co-signer involved. And I know that you know the impact uh, and the effect that all of this has on people. You guys have done mm-hmm. so much good studying of this. Uh, it's, it's significant uh, yeah. of the impact that people feel. Yeah, there's not a day that that goes by that I don't have pause, even just for a brief second to think about, you know, what is that person, what's their day-to-day of being in debt and how is it impacting them? We surveyed our clients and, you know, it impacts everybody. Um, You know, 64% of people said their self-esteem suffered from being in debt. 
you know, 57% of people think that their health suffered. And that seems low to me. Just about everybody I've seen, um, they're manifesting stress physically. And I can tell once we solve the problem because they're a completely different person and, and they look it. Um, you know, 36% of people said their relationships suffered. So that's, that's a pretty significant portion. Um, you know, quite often people think that, you know, going through bankruptcy causes a divorce, but it's usually the opposite. It's, you know, the divorce causes the financial problems. Right. But when you get yourself into a tough financial situation, couples often stop communicating or they start blaming each other, and neither of which are productive. Yeah, because if your self-esteem is suffering and you're feeling like crap, then, yeah, other stuff starts to fall apart. Yeah, and, you know, even to the point where this can become existential for folks. So I've had people in my office who have very clearly told me they were, you know, they were at the point where they didn't want to be here anymore. They didn't want to be a burden, and some of them had taken steps towards that. So it can be all-encompassing, can really be a life-or-death situation, and that's why I encourage everyone, if you think you've got a debt problem, if you're feeling this type of a stress, have the conversation even before you think you need the conversation. I have quick phone chats with, you know, maybe five, ten people a day sometimes, and they hang up saying, okay, well, thanks for that. I don't need you right now, but at least I can advise somebody else, or at least I know it's not going to be a problem for me as I go forward. Right, because you'll ask, you know, the questions to ask them. Exactly. Especially the questions that maybe they haven't asked themselves to then be able to take that next step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people just need to realize, you know, money problems happen. They can happen to anybody at any time. Sometimes the warning signs are not so drastic as in you're in court next week and they're about to take your wages. Sometimes it's just a monthly overspending due to, you know, just a really high cost of living. Um, and folks just need to come in and get some help. And the best way to do that is I'll give you the number for Sands and Associates, 16 offices in the province, 1-800-661-3030. And Sands and Associates is a licensed insolvency trustee. So they have a whole staff. Blair is in one office. He's got of staff. There's offices all over with really super qualified people that can help you figure out the next step for this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on anything that we talk about on the show, make sure you go to the website, sands-trustee.com. Loads of good answers uh, and questions and answers uh, for things that might come up for you. So facing a bank account or a wage garnishment, super stressful and very overwhelming. But what happens specifically, because I didn't even think about this, uh, is is when a bank is garnishing Mm -hmm. the money in your bank bank accounts. So yeah. uh, my first kind of question about that was how how often does that happen in your world when you talk to people? Well, you'd be really surprised and usually the way in terms of how often it happens, quite often, yes. and usually the way that it happens is that you've got your daily banking account and you've got your credit card account and suddenly you go delinquent, you've missed a few payments, so on and so forth, and then you put a deposit into your checking account. Maybe you're about to pay your rent the next day and suddenly that money's there, not there anymore, it's gone because the bank has seized it and they've taken it to apply against an overdue debt. Okay. So within and the same institution, that happens quite often. Banks have the right to offset a debt against an asset. And if you're delinquent with the bank, um, I encourage you not to do your daily banking there at the same time. And that's the key there, because we've talked about that before, mm-hmm. the same institution. Yeah. So if you bank at the Royal, for example, and then you've got a Royal Bank credit card, mm-hmm. 
they're working together there. Oh, yeah. it's, it's the same umbrella, just yeah. different pieces. Yeah, you're, so, making, you're making it too easy for the banks. And again, I believe everyone should have an individual responsibility to pay their debts. Yes. But if it's, you're in a really tough spot, you literally can't pay and your rent money is about to get seized by your credit card company, that's not a good result of being at the same institution. If you had your checking and savings account at a different bank, they would have to go through all the steps we're about to talk to here to actually get at your money. So within the same institution, you're always at risk of having your your assets seized if you get behind on your debts. One more question before we get into the meat of this. Does it matter if I'm a member of a credit union or a client at a bank? It absolutely does not. So those rules are the same. Banks and credit unions will both exercise the rights of offset. I've seen that. Okay, good. Yes. All right. So so here we are. We're talking... Your situation, you talk to people all the time uh, that have questions about this. Mm-hmm. What uh, what kind of uh, garnishments or assignments are out there? Yeah, what, are, it, what are people facing these yeah, days? Yeah, and let's be clear about the terminology. You know, a garnishment or an assignment, it's basically a seizure. It's something being taken from you. It's an asset that you have that you really probably didn't want to give up, um, but through you know no choice of your own, it's been taken from you. Okay. And how can that happen or what can be taken? Well, first off, you know, a bank account can be seized. Um, income tax refunds can be seized seized. GST and HST credits, so the quarterly checks that a lot of people, a lot of folks get in the province here, yeah. those can be seized. Uh, your rental or your lease payments even. Um, insurance claim proceeds. So it's a pretty long list of, of different sources of funds um, that could potentially be subject to seizure. And you, and even investment. Yes. Investment money, which yeah. is... Yeah, interesting. Yeah, now typically not an RRSP. They can't force you to deregister. But a non-registered fund, yeah, definitely it could happen. Or if I'm getting regular um, uh, payments, or mm-hmm. not payments, but m- cash out of my investments, mm-hmm. would that be impacted as well? Could it that could fall be. Under, could oh, yeah, be? and any money that you've basically put into your account could be subject to a seizure okay. if someone goes through the right steps. All right. Uh, so how does a bank account seizure work? And how does a creditor go about putting that in place, getting mm-hmm. that started? Yeah, it's quite similar to a wage seizure, which we talked about in, in previous shows here. Um, to get a garnishing order for a bank account, the creditor first needs to get a judgment against you proving the debt. Uh, once they do that, then they're able to fill out and file a garnishing order. And if it's under $25,000, it can be done in the small claims court registry. Uh, once they've got the garnishing order, a registrar will sign it and then provide the creditor's copy copies that they will then serve your bank. Uh, once a creditor has those orders, they provide copies to the bank and direct the bank to pay them the money owing from your bank account into the court. And from there, the creditor applies to the court to get the money taken out um, and to their benefit. So there's a few different steps they have to do, uh, but it's all relatively straightforward. It can be done through small claims court. Now, did I understand this correctly? Not once did you talk about me mm-hmm. as somebody whose money is being taken. Mm-hmm. Do I get an opportunity to show up at any of these things? Do I know that this is going on before it's too late and the money's taken? Well, when they get a judgment against you, you have to be given notice at that time. So if a judgment is against you, yes, but after that, from proceeding to a garnishment, typically you don't get that notice. So okay. if you've ignored the judgment, the, sorry, the judgment hearing, and it just gets made against you, you probably won't know the next step until you've seen that, that some assets have been taken from you. Okay. Now, how much or, uh, yeah, how much can they take? Everything. Yeah, there's there's no exemption saying, okay, we'll leave the person $1,000 to pay rent or buy groceries. 100% of funds subject to a garnishment could be taken. So even if I'm a single person and I've got children in the home and all that kind of stuff, that's just the way it is. Unless you've got a joint account, a joint account couldn't be seized unless they had a judgment against both people. But yeah, if you're an individual and you've been 
you know, sued and you've got some money in the bank, that money is at risk that it could be garnished. So is that a plus then? I mean, it sounds to me like a plus to do joint account if you can. There's a little bit of an extra layer of protection there. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, you know, most of the time, unless you're getting into trouble with your debts, it's typically not too much of an issue. You're not having people suing you and getting garnished. But yeah, if you're on a precarious situation, um, a joint bank account might not be a bad thing to at least stop you from being garnished, um, you know, without any of your notice. Got it. So any exceptions for any of this? Well, the government is their own kettle of fish here. So a, com- a complete exe- exemption to, exception to this. Uh, the government can issue what's called a requirement to pay and they can do that with no notice to you at all. Um, They can serve that to a client if you're self-employed, or they can just basically issue that to your financial institution. Uh, It's called, you know, a bank account freeze or a bank account seizure, Uh, but the government can basically shortcut that whole court application that we talked about and just essentially do it. Now, they don't do it out of the blue if you're up to date with them and you don't have any debt, but if you're delinquent and things that went on for periods of time and the government's aware there's some pot of money sitting in the bank, they will not hesitate to go and seize that money. Okay, so what about non-government? government creditors. What uh, are, are they able to do the same thing or how does it work for them? Yeah, and that's the right of offset. So we talked about that a little bit on the, on the outset here and my whole you know number one piece of advice for anybody is never borrow where you keep your monthly income. So mm-hmm. if you've got a credit card at one bank, make sure that you bank with a different bank or a credit card company because if you don't do that, you've shortcutted this whole court thing. If you're delinquent with a bank, they have the right to offset your debt against your asset. They could go into your account if you missed a minimum payment on your credit card, take out that minimum payment, take out extra charges with no regard to where that might leave you. Okay. So is it okay if we go to the next question about the difference between a bank account seizure and garnishment and a bank account freeze? Can you sort of give us a... a Reader's Digest version? Oh, certainly, yeah. So a bank account seizure is exactly what it sounds like in that whatever's in your bank account has been taken. It's been seized. It's no longer there. And that money is not coming back. It's been paid into court. And if you intervene very quickly, you might be able to convince the court, okay, well, I need that money out for whatever. But most of the time that doesn't happen. The money goes into court, gets paid out relatively quickly. Bank account freeze is something that CRA does. And a bank account freeze means that essentially the account can't move. It's, It's frozen where it is right there, but they haven't taken the funds yet. What they've done, they often do this to self-employed people, is to get your attention. So if they know a self-employed person is running everything through their account, they can see lots of money going, but they're getting no money for GST. They know the person should be paying and filing GST on time. They might freeze that account, get the person to phone into CRA and say, okay, the condition of us unfreezing that account is that you file all these returns up to date, you make the payments as we talked about, and then they'll unfreeze the account. So if you don't deal with CRA, that account will remain frozen. Then often after a period of time, they will seize the funds. Uh, But when your account is frozen, it doesn't necessarily mean that the funds are gone right away. Right. But it also means that you can't access them. Exactly. Yeah. And again, if you're a self-employed person, you're probably money in, money out multiple times per day that can grind you to a halt. Okay. How can you stop this? Can you stop any of this? Is there something that you can do? There's kind of three ways you can come at it. So the first way is you could apply to court to have the garnishing order set aside if you can prove that there's serious hardship and it's not necessary to ensure that you pay. That's very rare that that happens, but you can get the court to reconsider. Um, a second is you could negotiate with the creditor and try to work out a reasonable payment plan. Now, if you could have paid them, you probably would have been paying them already, but right. it is an option to consider. The third way is to sit down with somebody like myself, a licensed insolvency trustee. Any bankruptcy or consumer proposal filing immediately stops a wage garnishment. It stops a bank account freeze, it stops a bank account seizure. I'll just mention the phone number if you want to get a hold of Blair and his staff at at, uh, Sands & Associates, and they've got 15 offices in the province, 1-800-661-3030, and get that consultation as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. 
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So bankruptcy is one of those scary words. We use it all the time. And it's, I know it's not scary to you, but I know it's scary to everybody. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons is that there's a lot of, mis- I mean, I've learned over this time doing the show with you, is that there's a lot of misinformation about mm-hmm. bankruptcy. And it's sort of rooted in in fear, yeah. that word. Um, and as a result, it gets really misunderstood. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a serious topic, because it is, mm-hmm. and it's impactful, but boy, oh boy, it can be the solution for you yeah. uh, done in a, in a really good way. It can be a solution for you. Yeah, it, it's a loaded term, right? There's so much emotion behind the yeah. word of bankruptcy, and a lot of people equate it with failure. Yes. And I don't. I, I equate it with rebirth, with starting over, nice. with you know getting a second chance at things. Um, but that's me, and I've been doing this work a long time. And I you've e- actually seen that happen Absolutely, for folks. Absolutely, yeah. For the last the 15 years, I've seen you know thousands of people get a new lease on life because they took a necessary step to move forward. And my life's work, why we're doing these shows, Elaine, is to let people know a lot of what you think you know about bankruptcy just ain't so. Yeah. There's a lot more to it than what you know. And I even see some clients where I'm sitting down with them and talking about their situation. I'm comparing a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal. I'll see them wince, even when I use the B word. Someone will say, okay, I'll stop using the B word here. But uh, at the end of the day, it's still a very visceral, emotional type of a reaction. So for today, let's go through in good detail. If someone was contemplating a bankruptcy, if they were just curious about it, if someone in their life is having a debt problem, what does it mean to go through that proceeding? Okay, so basic process to get it started. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it that difficult to do? No. So a lot of people think it's going to take, you know, weeks or months and a lot of, you know, crazy information required. Uh, most of the time at Sands and Associates, it's three meetings to get things started. Okay. So the first meeting is an initial consultation. It's a free consultation. You never charge anybody anything and we do nothing uh, officially at the first meeting. And, you know, the first few minutes is just trying to get the person, you know, to relax, to understand <laughs> that we're here to help them, um, to really, you know, de-stress a little bit. Um, and then for us to understand what they're facing, you know, empathy is probably the greatest skill a trustee can have. So really just taking a second and trying to walk a moment in that person's shoes and say, you know, what is their day-to-day like if they've got six different credit cards that are co- that are calling them? Um, they've got a child at home, maybe who's sick, and they, you know, their spouse just lost the job. That's a pretty tough position to be in. So in the first meeting, we want to figure out what they're facing, but then also try to start to explore some options. So, you know, what would a bankruptcy look like? Would that solve this situation? And start to answer some questions. You know, is a proposal an option? By the end of the first meeting, we want the person to understand, okay, we know where you're at, but there is some hope. There's an ability to move forward. Uh, There's very few first meetings that I finish where the person is not in a much better state of mind than when we started because a lot of their worst fears that they were going to be judged, there was going to be no solution to the problem. um, Those worst fears are typically not realized. Excellent. So, uh, second meeting. Mm-hmm. So, is- first meeting usually closes off with us saying, okay, we've answered a bunch of questions. We figured out here's how a bankruptcy or a proposal might work. If you choose to go forward, we need to get a whole lot more detail. We need yeah. to essentially get some proof of everything you've told us today. So, we give you an application form, which is not rocket science. As you know, your basic contact information. Let's look at your, your monthly budget. Let's get a listing of all of your debts of who you owe money mm-hmm. to. And we ask you to bring all that back for a second meeting. 
So second meeting, you bring back all of your debts, you know, people that are chasing you. Maybe you bring back your vehicle registration. Maybe there's an RRSP statement. You just basically give us an overview of your finances, your assets, your liabilities. And then from there, you give us the green light. So after the second meeting, you say, yep, you know what? We sat down, we talked about a proposal, we talked about a bankruptcy. In this case, bankruptcy makes sense. Blair, please prepare the documents. And I can do that within about two days. And I don't necessarily, I mean, I know ultimately I have to make that decision in the the meeting, but I'm making it with a ton of information that I didn't have before. And if you think a consumer proposal is the way to go, you're going to tell me that too, right? Absolutely. So my job as a trustee um, is not to recommend, I can't say you should do this, but to give you all of the options, to give you a very clear line of sight of here's a proposal, here's what you might want to consider, here's a fact pattern where this might make sense, here's the ups and downs, and then here's a bankruptcy, same type of information. I'm completely agnostic or indifferent between which way that you choose because that's your personal responsibility, your personal choice, but I help you execute on either and help you make that decision so that you feel comfortable with it. And then a lot of people too, I have them sometimes push me, well, just just tell me what to do. But no, it's you really have to buy in. This is your financial future. It's going to be your bankruptcy or your proposal. And people feel that sense of ownership if they've made the decision themselves, rather than just saying, okay, another advisor told me what to do. I'm doing it, but I'm not sure why. Right. That's not how we want to operate. Okay. So the whole timelines there, Elaine, I often see people, you know, say it's a Monday for a first meeting. I might see them on a Thursday or Friday for a second meeting with all of their documents. And then often it's ne- earlier to mid the following week when we're signing the documents. All right. Some people will take two years to go through those three meetings, but most people it's in the space of a couple of weeks. Sure. Because once you've taken that first step to come in and sit down and start talking about it and even being offered like a glimmer yeah. of hope that there's a way to deal with this, yeah, I would think people would want to keep moving mm-hmm. along. Well, and I can tell it's almost like you bust the dam open that, you know, there's been something they've been holding inside for so long. They don't want to tell anybody about these debt problems. Maybe they're even hiding the mail from their spouse. But then as soon as they know, this is a safe space. I'm not here to judge. I'm here to help. A lot of more people have came through the store with worse situations even today, and we've helped them out too. So, you know, I find a lot of people, once they start to open up, um, they're really keen to go forward because then they can see the problem's going to get solved. Sure. So now that the bankruptcy has officially started, Mm -hmm. uh, what happens next? Yeah. So bankruptcy is going to last either nine or 21 months if you've never been bankrupt before. And that's a wide, wide change from the seven years most people think about, that seven-year myth of bankruptcy. Now, where did, do you, do you have a theory as to where the seven years came from? There's always an element of truth in every myth, right? So where that comes from is most bankruptcies, almost 80% of them are over in nine months. And I'll explain to you why, but essentially a lot of bankruptcies are over in nine months. And after you finish a bankruptcy for the next six years, if someone pulls a credit report, they're going to see you file the bankruptcy. Nine months plus six years, pretty close to seven years. So some people think that's a seven-year term of bankruptcy. Now, what that doesn't recognize is literally after nine months, you're out of bankruptcy. You can start to save money. You can rebuild your credit. Um, You can start to basically turn things around. A lot of people two or three years after bankruptcy are qualifying for mortgages if they've been able to save a down payment. If somebody thinks that the term of bankruptcy is seven years and they don't rebuild their credit at all, well, then yeah, for seven years, they're not going to have great credit. But most people, two years after a bankruptcy discharge, they've got their credit rebuilt better than before. But after nine months, Mm -hmm. you're out of it. After nine months, you can be finished your bankruptcy. Okay. So that's interesting. Yeah. So the the duration of bankruptcy, um, it doesn't matter the amount of the debt. So it could be millions of dollars. It could be a few thousand dollars. That's not what determines whether you're in bankruptcy for nine or 21 months. The only determinant is your ability to pay basically your monthly income. So the government sets out these guidelines and they say, if you're considered low income, which means for a single person, your after-tax take-home pay is less than roughly $2,200 per month. If that's the case, bankruptcy runs for nine months. 
If you're not low income, meaning you're earning above roughly the $2,200 on a monthly basis, bankruptcy runs for 21 months. So that's the only difference is are you low income or not low income? There's a bunch of other things that can impact your income, you know, like child support payments, um, Canada Child Benefit, different things like that, medical condition expenses. Um, There's a lot of things that can be added or subtracted to income, but at the end of the day, income is the only thing that determines whether a bankruptcy is nine months or is 21 months. Okay. Now, do you want to talk about um, the credit counseling sessions that that you guys do as well? Yeah. So when you file for bankruptcy, there's three big things that you have to do. And one of them, and often the most rewarding part of the whole thing, is that you come in for two financial credit counseling sessions. So they're private one-on-one sessions. They're in our offices right where you sign the documents. And we talk to you about all the things you wish they had taught you in school about finances and they just don't. So things like household budgeting, how to set up a good budget that's not going to break on you and how to adjust it when you have to. Second counseling session is all about credit rebuilding. So how do you make sure this isn't going to follow you for the rest of your life that you know you're going to have bad credit? How do you really do the right things that you can act differently after the bankruptcy, rebuild your credit and avoid the situation happening again? So being in bankruptcy, counseling is one of the big three things that you do. The other really important things that you do in bankruptcy is first off, you have to keep a monthly budget. So part of bankruptcy is a financial rehabilitation process. And the best way to financially rehab yourself is to actually track all of your spending on a monthly basis, guide it against your income and see, are you, are you basically balancing or not? In bankruptcy, you're required to do that. So every month, oh. whether it's nine or 21 months, you have to provide a detailed budget to the trustee. Um, and the trustee uses that again to make sure you're financially rehabilitated and also to calculate, are you low income? Are you not low income? How long do you have to be in bankruptcy? Got it. So going through a bankruptcy, you do the count. Counseling, um, you make the budgets every month, and yes. then you're required to make some payments depending on your income as well. Okay. What about income tax? How does that, how do how do I do that? Yeah. So if you're in a bankruptcy, any tax debts that you had prior to the date that you filed for bankruptcy, so literally that day, whatever it is through the year, is included in the bankruptcy. So you could be self-employed with a lot of debt. You might be a T4 employee that cashed in some RSPs and owe a little bit of money. Regardless of that, it's going to be something that's included in the bankruptcy and tax debt has nothing special separate. Now, the year that you file for bankruptcy, let's say you went bankrupt in June, your tax debt is going to be dealt with up until the moment of your bankruptcy, which could be June 1st. But for the rest of that year, if you're self-employed, employed, for example, you have to make sure you're paying your taxes every month because that's your post-bankruptcy period. We've dealt with all the debt before, but now this is kind of the first day of the rest of your life that you need to make sure you keep up on all your obligations, which include your taxes going forward. Okay. And you'll help me figure that out. Of course we do. Okay. Now, definitely if you're self-employed, I'd be saying I'm one of a suite of professionals you should have. Another would be an accountant who's going to help you figure out exactly what to pay every month. But as a trustee, I want you to succeed. I'm going to try to help you get set up as much as possible. Excellent. What... And you mentioned here surplus income. Mm-hmm. What What is that? Because how, how do you get surplus income? Yeah, and that's a misnomer. It's a term that I don't like in the law because that implies there's some money left over at the end of the month, surplus yeah. income. That's not what it means at all. Okay. What it means is essentially that low income versus not low income type of thing. So if you're a single person and you're earning less than $2,200, the government says you have no surplus income. Okay. It doesn't matter if you live at home, you pay almost nothing for rent and you actually have money left over at the end of the month. The government says if you're low income under $2,200, you have no surplus. If someone has no surplus, then they're considered in bankruptcy for nine months. Okay. okay. All they pay during that term is the cost of the bankruptcy, which in most cases is $200 a month over nine months. Okay. Now, if somebody has surplus income, things change in a big way. So let's say someone's earning $3,200. 
a month. And we said the guideline was $2,200. So what the government would say is they have $1,000 of surplus income. Now, Elaine, $3,200 a month in Vancouver sounds like a pretty good wage, but if you're paying $2,000 in rent, and if you got a car, you're paying ICBC. If you want to eat. All that stuff. You probably don't have any surplus income, and we know that, but the government requires us to do a calculation that says every month if you're in bankruptcy, you have to pay half of your surplus income to the trustee. So this situation, a person might be earning $3,200. The guideline is $2,200. They're $1,000 above. If they filed for bankruptcy and their income was that, each month they would pay $500. Okay. And then what happens to that money? Is that something that you keep or... How does that work? Oh, all great questions. Yeah. So as a trustee, everybody that files a bankruptcy or a proposal, I put the money into a trust account. And then once the proceeding is complete, there's some repayment on the debts. Excellent. So that money goes to cover the trustee fees, which are roughly the $1,800. And then after that, there's a sharing between the trustee and then what gets paid back to the creditors. So in most cases, it's pennies back on the dollar, but in some cases, there's more money repaid. Okay. Um, Any debts that aren't covered by personal bankruptcy? Very, very few. You know, things like child support, um, family maintenance, court-imposed fines, but that's about it. Only other big exception is a student loan if it has not been seven years since you were a student. But you should talk to us about that. Okay. Go to Sands & Associates. Go to their website if you want more information, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Having your wages garnished is got to be one of the most stressful and overwhelming feelings that you can have. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine I can't imagine what that would feel like. Um, and the interesting thing about this segment is that there are rights and remedies that maybe you're you haven't thought of yet or mm-hmm. you don't know about and that's what this segment's all about. Yeah, and and talk about a bolt out of the blue, Elaine. So this is what sends people, you know, running through our doors or picking up the phone, you know, urgent, urgent need to see us because having your wages garnished means that someone is taking your money before it gets to you, Uh, meaning that a creditor is sometimes taking 20, 30, 50% sometimes of your wages before it actually hits your bank account. So for today, we're going to go into a good amount of detail, you know, what is the wage garnishment? How can it get started? And then how can you stop it? Exactly. So Mm -hmm. let's first, let's do that first then. Uh, What is it and who? Who can take your money before you get it? Mm-hmm. Well, so it's sometimes called a garnishee or a wage assignment or an attachment. So there's a number of different ways to say it. But a wage garnishment is a legal court order that means that a creditor or somebody that you owe money to is able to collect a debt from you by seizing part of your income on each pay- paycheck. Uh, garnishments can be undertaken by any creditor as long as they follow the necessary processes. Um, so it could include an individual that you owe money to. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a big bank or a credit card company, uh, although those are the most common ones are banks, credit card companies, collection agencies. Uh, Canada Revenue Agency is quite often the person to garnish, um, and they've got a bit of a shorter route to go, and we'll talk about that a little bit later here, but they often garnish for things like a taxpayer debt, income taxes, business GST, payroll 
deduction um, Canada student loans if you're in default. So if you haven't applied, you know, interest relief or payment assistance, if you just go silent on your student loans, uh, CRA will get involved and start to take collection activities, which could include a garnishment. And then also things like EI overpayments and penalties. So the CRA umbrella is quite all encompassing. Any amount owing to the government essentially could be subject to a garnishment. Um, You know, other types of debts are the really high priority types of creditors. So family maintenance and enforcement programs. Now, can I just stop you right there? So is that the old, is that the new term for the old uh, child support payments Mm -hmm. or spousal support? Okay, so it's called family maintenance enforcement program. Exactly. FMEP is the the acronym that we hear quite often. Um, And yes, they can start a wage garnishment um, as well if you're behind in your maintenance payments. Got it. The way that works, a notice of attachment can be issued uh, by FMEP and they can include, you know, wages, salaries, pensions, disability, work safe benefits, essentially just about any of your sources of income could be subject to an FMEP attachment. Okay, so how does that start? How does a creditor start that for for the layman listening mm-hmm. like me? How, yeah. how do they get to do that? Yeah, for the most part, it doesn't come without warning. Okay. okay, so most creditors need to apply for to court in order to start a wage garnishment, and that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, they can't simply start taking your money from your wages right away. Although there are some exceptions to this, and we'll talk about those. Yeah. But any matter that goes to court, you know, by the laws of British Columbia, you have to be properly served, which means they have to make a good faith effort to find you. And someone will walk up and say, "Are you so and so?" and hand you some documents. That means that you've been served. Right. If they can't find you, they have to show they tried every way which way to do so, and they'll send you something electronically or via mail, and that'll accomplish the same thing. But once you've been served, typically there's a few weeks until the court date, and then it's your responsibility to either show up if you want to contest this proceeding, or if you don't show up, well, then it'll probably be awarded against you. Okay. And and it's not, and so once that starts, Mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of other people have to be involved as well. If I'm working for a company, they have to know this. Exactly. And people are always so worried when they come in to see me, you know, you're going to tell my boss I was here? I'm like, no. No, why would I ever do that unless if your boss already is involved because your wages are getting garnished, I'm going to have to tell your boss, okay, let's stop that garnishment. Now he's getting, he or she is getting protection with a trustee here. So that's the extent of it. But you're right, Elaine, if it gets to a garnishee, well, then suddenly your HR is involved, your payroll is sure. involved, and they're probably clearly on your side. They want you to be okay. But by law, they have to follow the law and they have to give those wages over before they're paid to you. Yeah. And depending on the size of the company you're working for too, mm-hmm. that can that can make a difference. Yeah. Now, this is super interesting because when I was reading this information about what this topic, mm-hmm. um, I was shocked to read about self-employed people. Mm-hmm. that that can happen to them as well. Yeah, so it can, and that's a different type of a term. Um, there's a thing called a requirement to pay. And if you're self-employed, so I was dealing with a gentleman just a couple weeks ago, very successful contractor. You know, he does work with a number of different large clients um, around the lower mainland here. Um, he had some issues with CRA, and instead of trying to seize his wages, because essentially, you know, that's pretty tough. He's his own HR department and everything like that. Right. Um, they issue what's called a requirement to pay to each of his clients, which talk about enlarging the problem. Now each of his clients knows that he owes money to CRA and what the requirement to pay says is that any monies that you're supposed to pay to this individual for his good faith lift, labor materials, all those things like that, by law, CRA is entitled to 100% of those proceeds. Amazing. So it essentially chokes the self-employed person off at the source. And again, it's all to get the person's attention, to make them take action, to deal with the issue, either to pay CRA to work out a payment plan or to come and see a, a trustee here as well. Exactly. So if if somebody is starting that action 
um, against me. Yep. What 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 are my what can I do about that? Yeah. So let's talk about kind of the nitty gritty of how the court action actually happens, and then we'll talk about what you can do. But before a creditor is able to take your wages, they have to get two court orders. So the first is a judgment against you called a payment order, and that just confirms that you owe the creditor the debt. Okay. And they're always going to win on this. They just come in, they say, yeah, here's the cardholder agreement or whatever. You exactly. agree that you incurred the debt, unless there's some conflict here, but typically there's not. Right. Uh, once the creditor has this judgment against you, that's when they can seek a garnishing order, which would require the third party or employer or whoever to make payments to the creditors. Uh, when the garnishee starts, your pay- payroll department will receive the order from the creditor, um, directing them to withhold the funds and send the money into court. And usually that's when most people learn. It's when their HR department received this garnishment and the HR by courtesy, tells the person, by the way, we're going to have to be withholding about 30% of your wages. Got it. So now, do I ever get a chance to say, hang on, mm-hmm. as, a, as an individual, can we, you know, just put a, a, a pin in this? You do. And reconsider? Absolutely. So when we talked about there was those two court hearings, um, you know, the first one is the payment hearing. Now, I always encourage everybody to show up to court anytime your name is being considered, right? You want to be there. You want to know what's going on. If you don't show up to this payment hearing, they will win 10 times out of 10, as long as it's a valid debt. If you do show up, courts are generally pretty reasonable. They know how drastic a garnishee can be. So you can consider, you know what, let's try to get the court to hear both sides of the matter and see if the court will make an order detailing some payment terms. You know, if the court thinks the creditor is being completely unreasonable, the court might say, okay, here's the payment terms. They're $25 or $50 a month. That's what I believe you're entitled to, creditor. But if you don't show up, you've got no ability to contest those payment terms, and it'll basically just be a rubber stamp. The, the creditor will get the judgment. Okay. Uh, in Because of the time that we have for this, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, um, how much of a person's income is a creditor allowed to allowed to take? Yeah, really good question. Let's make sure folks know. So in the province of BC, in most cases, up to 30% of your net after payroll deductions income can be garnished. So 30% is pretty significant. Uh, There can be some exceptions to this. So um, 100% of income earned through self-employment, as we talked about through a requirement to pay, that could be seized. And then occasionally government income like CPP, OAS, um, GIS, employment insurance, even social assistance benefits, um, those cannot be garnished except if you've got a really significant debt to CRA or to FMEP. Okay. So for the average person working a job, it's up to 30% of your wages is potentially what's at risk. The other thing that, that crossed my mind when I was reading this is I was shocked to know that a creditor can actually increase the amount mm-hmm. that you owe yeah. them based on what? Well, if you think about it, so if everything was paid according to plan, the creditor would not have to go through any extra expenses. They wouldn't have to hire lawyers. They wouldn't have to hire process servers to give you documents. They wouldn't have to show up in court. And when they get their payment order, money's got to come from somewhere. And you can imagine it's fair, I guess, um, that the creditor would be allowed to recoup some of their costs. Now, for the person who's already got a debt they can't pay, seeing, you know, $1,000 or more of extra costs added on to some of these orders can be very demoralizing. Um, But at the end of the day, the creditors do have the right to recoup their costs as part of the payment order. So I'm thinking the only way for me or anyone in this particular situation could uh, 
get some help would be to go to see a licensed insolvency trustee. And I'm not just saying that. I mm-hmm. mean, that's really the only way. Yeah, short of convincing the court that, you know, 30% is putting you in real hardship, seeing a trustee is absolutely the most direct way to get these garnishments to stop, to work out a plan that you can afford to restructure the debt. If anyone out there is being garnished, don't suffer. Come in to see a trustee. Odds are we can fix it. And if you want to, if you just want to take a pause and don't don't want to run into the office and make that appointment and all that stuff, go to the website for Sands and Associates at sands-trustee.com. There's loads of good information there, which will help you make that decision and then give them a call. 1-800-661-3030. Get that consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.